Well, y'all will have to be patient with me tonight. It's been a long time since I've done this, so hope it comes back. So we're obviously, as a team, excited to be back together this evening. We're going to conclude the life of Hezekiah tonight. Amen. And uh, it's quite a conclusion. To properly set the stage for chapter 32, where you should turn in your Bibles, because that's where we'll be, we're going to revisit a few of the highlights, just skim over the top of chapters 29, 30, and 31. The reason that we're going to do that is it'll illuminate some truths that otherwise would be easily missed in the details. So when you think of chapter 29, remember that Hezekiah was called the son of David. He's not referred to as the son of Ahaz. That was significant. It's because in 2 Samuel 7, there was a promise to the house of David. And they would never fail to have a man sit on the throne. That seems like such a straightforward promise, but it's been so tested in history. Uh, Had some really bad kings. Had some really bad circumstances. There are many men that failed, but the promise of God never fails. One of the... Favorite things from chapter 29, something important to our day, is while his biological donor dad, Ahaz, closed the doors of the temple, in chapter 29, on the first day of the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened them. He wasn't having any of the CDC, none of Fauci. He was just going to do what God said to do. This resulted in a purifying of the temple. He began to call the Levites back into consecration, and they answered in huge ways. The Levites did it so well that the priests among the Levites were ashamed of themselves, and they also got consecrated. He reinstituted temple sacrifice that had stopped. Those are incredible accomplishments if that's all that had happened in his life. But it's not. In chapter 30, He sends out messengers and letters to the edges of the kingdom. In fact, Samaria has fallen at this time. The northern kingdom has been taken into captivity. But Hezekiah goes to regather the exiles. You've heard the myth of the ten lost tribes? Well, they couldn't be lost. Hezekiah reached them. And they answered. You have no idea what a big deal that is because it's the beginnings of of a promise to reunite the tribes of Israel under one Davidic son. How cool is that? They didn't just get together and have a kegger. They celebrated Passover together. And they did it in a way that had not been done since the days of Solomon. You know how cool that is? That's not just because of the number of sacrifices. It's not just because... They did some things right. It's because Israel had not been united as a people like this since the days of Solomon. Friends, that's messianic in every sense of the word. They encouraged all Levites who showed good skill in chapter 30. He didn't just purify the priesthood. He raised the level of the priesthood. Tell me that doesn't make you think of Jesus. More than that, Solomon's prayer... From 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, if my people will humble themselves and pray, it's answered in Hezekiah's day. Everything that Solomon said would happen to the nation, that they would be dispersed, that 
They would be plagued with famine, that they would have these difficulties because they forgot the Lord their God. He said, but when they turn to this house and pray, well, that happened in Hezekiah's day. That's incredible. We need to carry these thoughts into our chapter tonight. By the time we got to chapter 31, they're breaking down all idolatry in Israel. They're throwing it in hell where it belongs. They're actually kind of rolling up hell itself and throwing it out too. They built up the house of God. They made repairs. There were such voluntary offerings that there's a word used says that there were heaps of offerings <laughs> everywhere. He provided for generations of a priesthood. They started giving offerings for priests as young as three years old. They weren't yet serving, but they knew one day they would serve and they were making provision for them. Come on. That's incredible. The people prospered under Hezekiah because Hezekiah prospered under the Lord's hand. That's quite a pedigree, don't you think? Yeah. As we go into chapter 32, we have had national revival. We've had the beginnings of a united Israel taking place. When we read chapter 32 from that strategically enlightened point of view, say strategically Strategically. enlightened. enlightened. When you understand what the people of God are accomplishing, then all of a sudden chapter 32 makes all of the sense in the world. Amen. Do you want to read it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, (laughs) you're back in town. One sexy grandma. Read to us chapter 32. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that all he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and streams that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large number of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battle. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah the king of Judah said. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all of his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with, his mess, with this message for, for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, said. On what you are basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege. When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, He is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. 
Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my father destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my father's. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other people of the world, the work of men's hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, cried out in prayer in heaven to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went to the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, from the hand of all the others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord to answer him and, save, and gave him a miraculous sign. But Hezekiah's heart was proud, and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart and did as the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a very great riches and honor, and he made treasuries for his silver and gold and for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kind of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine and oil, and he made stalls for various kinds of cattle, pens for the flock. He built villages and acquired great number of flocks and herds, for God had given him great riches. It was Hezekiah who blocked up the upper outlet of the Gihon spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. He succeeded in everything he undertook. But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that, he had, that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. The other events of Hezekiah's reign and the acts of devotion are written in the vision of the prophet of Isaiah, son of Amoz, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Hezekiah rested with his fathers and was buried on the hill where the tomb of David's descendants are. All Judah and all the people of Jerusalem honored him when he died, 
and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Come on. Well, we obviously have some interesting content this evening. Yeah. Yeah. What is an, exactly the kind of chapter that uh, had things that are of no interest to anyone? <laughs> we have angels slaying men. We have men building towers and siege ramps. At the end of the day, this evening we want to cover exactly what the text is speaking to us as the Spirit enlightens it for us in our day, in our time. Amen. I think we just heard a fantastic word on Sunday about yeah. a right word in the right time. In light of that, I'd like to ask Paul Rosales to pray for us, and then we will pick up in verse 1 and get at it. Father, we give you all the glory tonight. Lord, we're committing right now to respond to this word. Father, we thank you that you're speaking a holistic word to us, Lord. Yes, my dear. Lord, we want to grow tonight. Lord, we want to pursue you with a deeper passion, with the wholehearted devotion, Lord. That is pleasing to you. God, we desire to prosper, Lord. So we commit to follow you wholeheartedly in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Lintonius, faithful reader of the scroll, would you get verse 1 for us? After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. Wow. Man, what a verse to begin with. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. And this series of events is interesting, and we're going to build on that as we go. But I'd like to first take a look at the word faithfully done. I think this is a pretty accurate description of the chapters that we've read, is it not? The man was faithful to God's house, to God's people, and he labored for God's name to be held in a high regard in Israel. Faithfully done is a good translation. It conveys the basic idea that the man operated with integrity and did it in a steadfast manner. But this obscures a few things that are going on in the original languages. Like all translations, we have to pick a singular English word. But we're going to show you there's a lot more at play here with this particular passage. I'm going to put a slide up for you that's from the NA27. So from right to left, after these things and the establishment. The establishment is the same word that was translated faithfully in the NIV. You notice here at Strong's number 571, MF, or something close to that. The best as a Houston hit can pronounce it. We want to show you a slide now that is a dictionary that will give you a better understanding of the usages of the words or ways that you could translate it in Hebrew. With faithfulness, certainty, reliability, trustworthiness, reality, or truth. Since we live in a day and age when truth is something that is considered relative, we even have phrases like, that's your truth, or well, this is my truth. The biblical worldview is not one that is relative. It is one that is an unchanging, certain, established reality where truth is truth. It doesn't shift and it doesn't change. I'm going to read this sentence one more time with that in mind. After all that Hezekiah had so truthfully, in reality, or in certainty, done. My brother's going to pick up and share a little more on this in another language. As he does this, remember that when we said strategically enlightened, you're supposed to come into these chapters 
thinking about what it is that he established, what it is that he handled truthfully, what it is that he had so faithfully done, because he's introduced as a son of David. He purifies the temple. He purifies the priesthood. He unites the tribes of Israel. He celebrates Passover. Are you following us here? So Judah showed you the Hebrew. I want to show you the Greek. This is the LXX, and it says, And after these words, and this truth, came Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians. After these words, and this truth. The Greek cognate for the Hebrew amet is Greek 225 aletheia. And I want to show you the lexicon for aletheia. It denotes a reality that is firm, solid, and binding, and hence true. So in the English, it says that Hezekiah faithfully did this. After all of these things that he did, he did it faithfully. But the original language denotes that what he was actually doing was setting a reality that already existed. He was bringing everything back to the truth that is already there. It didn't exist prior. What Hezekiah was doing was seeing the truth that never changes and establishing that on the earth where it's supposed to be. If you're in a construction kind of frame of mind, Charlie Brown, it was out of plumb and he set it back where it's supposed to be. Well, the reason that we're walking you through these linguistics is that we are promised by Jesus himself that when we walk in, establish, and are faithful to the truth, opposition will follow. So we're going to hand out a few passages in the Gospel of John as a place to start, and we want you to see how predictable, how promised it is that when you get back on God's plan, back on his track, Opposition always follows. So, starting over here, let's take Abimbola. You'll take John 16, 1 through 3. Josephus, why don't you take John 16, 13 through 14. Mr. Hayes, take John 16, 20 through 21. Marlon, you take John 16, 33. Uh, Steve Thomas, John 17, 15 through 18. Carlos... Take John 1, 14 through 17. Spencer, you take John 1 and verse 5. We're going to pause at that and we're going to comment between each one of these. Please call out your scripture prior to reading it for those that are taking notes. For those that aren't taking notes, be very ashamed of yourself. (laughs) John chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. All this I have told you so that you would not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. Look, when you're walking in, when you're established in, when you are faithful to the truth, Jesus has promised opposition. It was that way in the first century. It's that way in the 21st century. John 16, get verse 13 and 14. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
Bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. He was imparting a revelation and a way of life to his disciples. Jesus is perfect truth. And they were learning how to walk in perfect truth. You know, in every chapter, Jesus is opposed when we walk through the Gospels. He is the living and breathing truth. And everywhere that he went, men were in opposition to it. The same spirit of holiness that we all are familiar with. He calls the spirit of truth that was in him, that had been driving him, had been directing him. And that same leading presence that needs to be in our lives and was in the lives of his disciples. Opposition is promised when we operate in the spirit of truth. Somebody say promise. Promise. Opposition is something that is promised in the face of reestablishing, firming up, and standing in the truth of God. The more truth that you're led into, the more opposition that we will face. Just like the son of David. Understanding this allows us to see Sennacherib's attack as confirmation that we are standing in the truth of God's word. See, opposition is not telling you that you're off track. It's actually confirming that you're on track. You could call it reverse validation. Jesus promised it. Who's, Who's got the next one? Real quick, somebody say, after all these things. After all these things. We're going to repeat that many times tonight. After all of these things is when Sennacherib wanted to fight. John 16, 20. 20 and 21. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Now Jesus is telling the truth. Wonder how many people wanted to oppose Jesus for what he's about to say. Keep going. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Look, the opposition is grieving. It's not easy. It wouldn't be opposition if it was. It causes travail. It causes birthing pains. It causes all of those moments where you feel like you are about to die. But they are all surpassed by joyous glory when truth ultimately prevails. Come on. When the truth ultimately prevails in you, it causes glory, and that ought to cause joy before the trial. The greater the opposition, it means the greater the glory of the triumph. The greater the opposition is a response to the great truth that is inside of you. And the more truth you have, the more opposition. But you know what that means? the greater the glory is after you go through the opposition. Amen. That is the beautiful thing about glory. The harder it is, the more glorious it is. Amen. The greater your joy in the opposition, the more faith you are expressing in the triumph of truth and the glory that follows. When you are expressing faith in the opposition, there is more glory that follows after you stand in that opposition. Amen. Who's got John sixteen thirty three? As we turn there, Marlon... Who climbed the shortest mountain in the world? Who lifted the least amount of weight in the world? Who ran the slowest one mile that history has ever recorded? No one knows because there's no glory in it. Christian, if you want to be an instrument of glory, 
It will only come under great opposition. And you are not awarded that privilege until you are greatly in the truth, firmly established in it. The greater you embrace the truth of the kingdom, the more you will be opposed and the more glory there is in you revealed as you walk through it. Listen clearly as this anointed man of God reads a singular verse that promises opposition. So that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Come on. Hezekiah's establishment of truth guaranteed opposition. It guaranteed it. God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 a house would be built for David. As long as the house is arrived, there's no reason for the enemy to come and attack. The enemy comes and attacks precisely because he has firmed up and established the reality that was declared in the heavens and it's now being built on the earth. Come on. This is the first time since Solomon's time that we have all the tribes of Israel coming to celebrate the Passover. Well, that certainly catches God's eye, but it also caught the enemy's eye. And that should not make you shudder in fear. You know how this story ends. Come on. The only reason that Christians shudder in fear is they don't know how the story ends. Jesus' establishment of truth in his followers always brings opposition. Come on. If you got born again and were met by easy days afterwards, you probably did not actually get born again. Most of us were thrown out of houses and ostracized usually by the religious community. We rejoice in the victory of Hezekiah. We rejoice in the victory of Jesus because we know how their stories ended. You will learn to begin to rejoice in your opposition when you become convinced of the ultimate outcome of your story. Amen. This comes from the firm establishment of truth in your life. That is how this chapter opens. And it's how our chapters must proceed. Amen. Who has John 17, 15? John 17, 15 through 18. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them for by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. But he asked that we be sanctified by the truth. Thinking in our context this evening, Hezekiah does not need less opposition. He is going to prevail because he's going to seek out the establishment of the truth of God that is sacred. That truth is what will prevail. Jesus and his walk did not need less opposition. He prevailed because he stood established and would not let go of the truth of God's word. You and I do not need to be removed from our situation. We don't need to be removed from the savage opposition that Sennacherib is bringing. We need to be sanctified by the truth of the word of God, and we will stand in our time and our day. Yeah, there should be more amens for that. Listen, if you're subscribing to Captain Colgate's Twitter feed, this is not what you're hearing. You... This is not a message that is being preached in our time. 
but it's a truth as old as Hezekiah's time. If we want to see the glories of God revealed on the earth, they're going to come in the face of great opposition, and only those firmly established in the truth will stand. Do you want to be among those that stand? Yes! Let's look at how the Gospel of John opens up this topic. It's John 1. Everything we just read to you was essentially from John 16 and 17 at the end of Jesus' ministry. We want to show you how his ministry was introduced. This is John 1, 14. John 1, 14 through 15. And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And we saw his glory, glory of us only, uh, as of an only brought forth son of a father, complete in grace and truth. John now pause right there. In the NIV it says, he came full of grace and truth. He came full of truth. It's easy to see in Jesus' life that that truth brought opposition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. As Judah was saying earlier, I'm sure many would look at Jesus' life and says he needs less opposition or his ministry, his ministry would be more effective if he had less opposition. But it propelled him because truth, truth brings opposition and opposition results in glory. It always results in glory. Which apostle do you love the most? What's wrong with y'all tonight? Stand up. Everybody in the room, stand up. Stretch out your hands towards the heaven. If you have to slap your face or your neighbor's face, there's a reason that we're doing this. Mighty God, breathe into your people, Lord. Wake them up. Stir them up, mighty God. Let your righteousness break forth in them. Amen. Now sit down with that kind of zeal. All right, say it with me. Truth brings opposition. Truth brings opposition. There's LCM. I, I thought I had come to a Presbyterian service. No. <laughs> Look, when we get around and it's just like men's retreat, we don't tell stories of oppositionless glory, do we? No. We like to tell stories of glory that results from opposition. Yes. Because that is how God built us men. We love to go after the glory of God. And that causes us to seek out more opposition and want more truth in us. So which apostle did you love the most? Paul. Because he suffered the least? No. <laughs> because he had the least opposition. That's why you love him, right? No. Why do people love preachers that preach about the least opposition? They're nothing like the men that wrote the scripture. Okay? There's a pattern here. John is writing this years after he saw the outcome of Hezekiah standing on the truth, <coughs> facing opposition, and John saw that a son was born to Israel in his time, just like it was born to Israel in Hezekiah's time. John was able to look back on Ezra's writing and see what that pattern produced. Keep going in verse 15. John were witness of him and cried out, saying, this, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has become before me, because he was before me. And out of his completeness we all did receive grace upon grace. Hmm. 17. For the Torah, or the law, was given through Moses. And grace and truth came through Yeshua Messiah. Amen. Look, we have frequently referenced parallels between John's Gospels and the story of Hezekiah. Time does not permit us to recount them now. 
But Moses, Moses established the true standard of the law, and Hezekiah's family established its truth in the practice of the people. Come on. Jesus, like Hezekiah, takes the true standard of the law and firmly establishes its truth in the practice of true Christians. Come on. What we see in the law given through Moses, we see it walked out in the living and breathing law, Jesus. He was truth in the flesh, walking out in practice and teaching it to the people. And any time truth is established, any time truth is established, opposition is promised. Yeah. Notice John 1.5. We want to put that on the screen. No, somebody was going to read it. Oh. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness. And what is the darkness trying to do? Look, we have it in the ESV, which is essentially what Spencer just read. True light was always in the business of exposing darkness. So darkness is always in opposition to the light, to the truth. There's a unique word here that's, that's fun that has to do with the overcoming part of it. Do we have that? Yeah, anybody want to take a crack at this since y'all are shy tonight? Oh, yeah, La Bamba. You got it. Yeah, for sure. When truth, when light, when truth or light appears, the darkness tries to lay hold of, tries to comprehend, and tries to seize it. John makes the point that when this truth entered the world, Darkness was not able to understand it, not able to suppress it, not able to lay hold of or overcome it. You see the same thing in the sheriff. He has some of the best questions in the Bible because he literally doesn't know the answer. He doesn't understand what he's seeing. He only knows how to oppose it. Look, we want to give you an LCM amplified version. The darkness couldn't understand, suppress, lay hold, or overcome the light of God. John opens his gospel this way because he understood the promise of opposition to the truth of God. That's why he calls him full of grace, full of truth, and full of glory. See, these things go together. The deeper you stand in the truth, the deeper you stand in opposition, and the more glory will be revealed in your life. John so frequently illustrates this perpetual conflict that in his writings alone... He mentions truth nearly 100 times using the same word that the LXX uses to say that Hezekiah established truth. There's a connection here. We need to hand out another few scriptures. John 4, 23 through 24. Get it? John 14, 6 through 7. Cody, this one's coming your way. John 8, 42. Through 44, Emmy, you can have 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 15. When we get to John 4, you can read it. John 4, verses 23 through 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. All right, it's that kind of night. Somebody say, must for me. Must. They must worship in spirit and truth. He didn't consider it optional. Listen, there's a context here 
that we covered in chapter 30 that we don't want you to miss. Letters went out in chapter 30 to this woman's ancestors, out into Samaria, calling them back to the truth of God's word in the one central place that they could worship. Hezekiah called Samaritans back to Jerusalem to worship in spirit and truth under his administration. We're watching parallels here because this has been God's heart from the beginning of time. And we watch Hezekiah display this. Now in John 4, Jesus, a son of David, like Hezekiah, is again reminding the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews and only full, complete, untainted truth is required in what the Father desires from his worshipers. Worshiping at Samaria, even if it has half-truths in it, is not sufficient. Half-truths, in fact, are whole lies because they will damn you while you're clinging to something that looks righteous. Yesterday we spoke some about false prophets. We're either in the spirit and truth or we are part of the opposition. Wow. All the while looking a little similar but not actually holding on to the truth. Mm-hmm. Biblical truth is not relevant and it does not deviate. It is what it is. It is a measuring line from God. Consider the beauty of this repeating pattern for just a second. Ahaz was horrific. Okay, Hezekiah is called the son of David. And after Hezekiah purifies the temple and the priesthood, the first thing he does is send letters out to the scattered Samaritans, his brothers in the northern kingdom. And shockingly, many of them come, and they celebrate the first united Passover since Solomon's day. Now Jesus, who is a descendant of Hezekiah and more importantly a son of David, is seeing a Samaritan revival. And what were they discussing? Did we worship on that mountain or in Jerusalem? Do do you see it? Okay. Whenever there's this kind of truth, there's going to be opposition. The enemy does not want to let go of what he holds. Who has John 14, 6? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Give her seven. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. All right, so I'm going to give you a softball question. You ready? I'm ready. Who in here just loves Jesus? A little slow on that. (laughs) Who in here just really loves Jesus? Would you die for him? Would you be willing to give up everything you have for him? Then what that means biblically by you saying you love Jesus means that you love the truth as well. Doesn't matter if the truth is against you. Doesn't matter if the truth is with you in that moment. If you love the truth, then you love Jesus. And if you love Jesus, then you love truth. Because Jesus is the truth. What is truth? It is Jesus. It is who He is. It's what He said. Jesus is the truth. He is the Word. And the Word is truth. If you really, really love the truth like you love Jesus, then you'll be established in the truth and you can expect Sennacherib to oppose you. If you love the truth, if you love to walk in it, if you love to seek it, if you love to to hear from God what is truth about you and your life and everything around you, you can expect opposition from Sennacherib. 
finish the proverb for me. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but in the end it leads to death. Why would you need to oppose somebody that was already on their road to death? But when you have found the pathway of immortality, when you are teaching others to do that, now there is a reason for the enemy to oppose you, yeah. and it is certain that he will. But it's to our glory because the outcome of that conflict is also certain. Amen. Yeah. Look, those in the truth should walk joyfully. Say joyfully. 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 Why? Because you're in the truth. Amen. How many years did we spend outside of the truth? Now you get to have more truth. Amen. That should cause you to walk joyfully and expect opposition and glorious victory in that opposition. Why? Because you love truth. Who's got John 8, 42 through 44? Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and am now, now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Not holding to the what? Truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Look, those who do not hold to the truth, those who depart from the spirit of truth, always end up having a murderous spirit. Yeah. They have to kill to avoid the exposure of their error. The greatest opposition always comes from those who did not hold to the truth. It's, it's never the Hindus that are the biggest problem. It is always those that once were a part of the truth and are now not. It's not Hindus that crucified Jesus. Okay? When you hold to the truth... You are promised murderous opposition from those who do not hold to the truth. Is that pretty clear? Yeah. But it's glorious because your life doesn't belong to you anyway. Yeah. And you're not trying to protect it. Yeah. Look, this gets really fun in Second Thessalonians. Pick up reading for me and we're going to cover 9 through 12 and then get going again. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that will serve the lie. And all the ways of the wickedness deceive, deceives those who are perishing. All right, Amy, I lied. I'm going to pause you here. All kinds of signs, counterfeit miracles, on display with a type of power. The word of God is truth, correct? Yes. To be lawless is the one who refuses God's word and God's truth. And he was not absent of outward signs and testimonies. Keep reading, Emmy. Um, uh, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in the wickedness. God sent a powerful delusion to a group of people that chose not to believe the truth. The lawless one is not something we're going to get into this evening, but it's representative of the Antichrist, of the king of the north, of the enemy that is looming over God's people. And the defining characteristics of those that were aligned with him were those that refused to love the truth. Keep reading 13 through 15. But we ought always, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, 
loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits <clears throat> to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Amen. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Share in the what? Glory. What do you get to share in? The glory. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Mm. Hezekiah, the son of David, is in conflict with a king of the north because he stood firmly established in the truth so that people could share in God's glory and God's victory as he delivers them through the truth. Look, to comment on that for a second. Who made a treaty with this king of the north and corrupted the altar of God and brought an Assyrian altar in and closed the temple doors and put the priest out? Ahaz. Ahaz. Who broke that treaty? Hezekiah. Because he stood in the truth. He didn't care what it cost him. Friends, there's glory in that. Of course they're in conflict. He's reestablishing something that was lost. You know, I suspect with his father having compromised so long, he wasn't unaware of a serious power. But something in the man was excited to stand on God's word and challenge the world anyway. He knew what he was bringing on himself, and he knew that what he was standing on was worth fighting for. These characteristics remind us of Jesus, the son of David, who also firmly established his body in the truth so that we, as his body, will stand with him in glory as we overcome the opposition that is the result of us standing in the truth. It's promised. It is our opportunity to participate in his glory as we endure the same opposition that he did. We are reminding you of this truth. Reading to you this passage in Thessalonians telling you to stand firm because you are called to stand with us in glory. We have tribulation, opposition, things that follow when we really dig in and take the kind of stand that Hezekiah did after all of these things. And we have real Christ-like glory that is on the other side of it and that ought to cause our hearts to sing. We'll get to become like our Savior. Y'all ready for verse 2? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, tell me that you're awake. We're 46 minutes yeah. in. And we're... Yeah. All right, pick up in verse 2, Lentonius. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had intended to make war in Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city. <laughs> and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the streams that followed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. Then he worked hard, repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside that and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him at the square, in the square at the city gate and encouraged them with these words. Now notice that at the first sign of opposition, Hezekiah consulted his princes and his mighty warriors. Man, in Hebrew, that word prince is sar, like archon. He consulted the rulers, and he also consulted the gibor rim, the mighty men. 
You know what this reminds us of? This reminds us of Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. This reminds us of Galatians 2, Paul visiting with Peter, James, and John, the mighty warriors and the princes. Man, those standing in the truth consult with others who are firmly established in the truth to make sure there are no deviations from the truth. Come on. Come on. Do, yeah. you, do you need your brother? Yes. Look, the first thing that after the consultation they do, you have to love this, is after making sure they were standing in the right place, they made sure that they cut off the water that would nourish their enemies. Come on. We could learn so much from this. Yeah. Who's been in marriage counseling in here? Then our first point will mean special things to you. (laughs) We've learned Proverbs 5 tells us to be blessed by our own fountain. Mm. And not to let our water run out in the street. We've come to understand this to mean that a proper, holy, uh, monogamous, lifelong, eternal, committed sexual life is meant to bless us. But to let the details run out in the street is to give the enemy something to attack you with. Come on. You better cut off that water supply. Yeah. The same is true of our speech. Prayer about our concerns is a fountain of life. But similarly speaking, complaining about your situation, verbalizing the very same thing, gives the enemy something to attack you with. Philippians 2.14 teaches us that. Anger. Anger is a proper, righteous response in many cases. Of course, Ephesians 4.27 says that when anger is dwelt upon overnight, you're giving the enemy a foothold. You better cut that water source off. Why should the enemy come and attack you and find streams? Evangelism. It's righteous. It's needed. It's holy. It's noble. Of course, friendship with the world or keeping company with the corrupt, it can give the enemy opportunity in your life. James 4.4 4 teaches us that. Wow. You better learn to block off those streams yeah. and use them to nourish your soul, not feed your enemy. Wise counsel from leaders who hold to the truth will help you. His counsel led him to identify areas that he was feeding the enemy in his own life and he didn't know it. And he began to cut them off so that they would no longer nourish the enemy. We need wise counsel and we need leaders in our life that can help us do the same. The next thing Hezekiah did is something that Jesus also does. He appointed military leaders. Military commanders. Men of war with insight. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 4, 8 through 13. Feel free to read on the screen. Or open your Bible if you can get there fast enough. Wow. I open your Bibles because the screens aren't working, but your lower yeah. tech, higher yield version, yeah. it will work. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. Yeah. And he gave gifts to men. If you're not familiar with Psalm 68 on another night, we'll cover it with you. But most of you should be. The king of kings came with myriads and myriads, chariots of thousands, and he fought and he took captives. And now he's giving gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one 
who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4 is quoting Psalm 68 here. As mentioned earlier, the context is Yahweh in a military campaign taking captives from his enemies on Mount Hermon. Paul asserts that those that were liberated, those captives, are now given as gifts to the body of Christ. Men who are military leaders who help prepare you for your works of service. Who has been freed by the truth so that they might free others by the truth. These men will build us up for our works of service. This is a military structure. The fivefold should not be seen as a poor man's substitute for psychology. I'm going to say that again. The fivefold ministry that we just read about should not be seen as a substitute for psychology or a confessional, but rather as military officers that are preparing you for the campaign that is ahead. I'm going to jump in on it. We are not here for you to just vent. Go find a bartender for that. We're here to show you how to win. We know how to win because we were one. And now that we have been one, all we want you to do is win. The fivefold is more likened unto military officers than it should be some kind of sympathetic ear that assuages your sweet little soul. In fact, that kind of sugary sweet sympathy can be found anywhere else, but they don't know how to win. We know how to win, and that's all we want. Hezekiah consulted with men that had the truth. He cut off the water source of the enemy, and then he appointed men that could teach his people to win. And Jesus Christ does the same thing. Now lastly, notice verse 5 says, They worked hard. Say worked hard. Worked hard. If you have aspirations of a life in ministry, this verse needs to stand out to you. If the Son of David appoints you, it is for hard work, not hardly working. <laughs> Look, I want to read 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12, and you're going to see a letter from a military officer to the congregants in Thessalonica. In verse 8, it says, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Oh, come on. We wanted to show you how to win. Because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember. Surely you remember what? An eloquent teaching? No. No. A nice little sermon? No, No, you remembered how they lived and how they won. It goes on to say, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. We worked night and day. Surely you remember. They had a right. Paul had a right to support. He had a right to their support. But he refused it because it was to their glory to suffer on behalf of their disciples. He wanted to show them how to win through opposition resulting in glory. They knew persecution was coming just like Hezekiah. Knew Sennacherib was on the way. 
These leaders would not rest until the people were ready. Amen. They knew to show them how to win. They had to show them how to work hard. It goes on in verse 10 to say, you are witnesses. Of, you're witnesses of what? How eloquently I presented things? No. Of our hard work. And so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Look, is your standard of holy living graded on a curve? No. Paul surely wasn't graded on a curve. In fact, he lived an open and displayed a life of hard work to demonstrate how to win for his disciples. Is your life graded on a curve? Well, I want to tell you to the people watching your life, they are not grading it on a curve. They are seeing every detail. Paul and Hezekiah led by example in their devotion to the bride building process. Day and night we worked. They did this through hard work. I'm going to read verse 11 through 12 to you. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. How did they see that displayed, though? Because Paul lived a life worthy of God through hard work. So the text says that Hezekiah and the men worked hard because they knew they were in a war. Paul worked hard because he knew he was in a war. If you have ministry aspirations, we want to encourage you with a small calculation we did today. Because we're going back to verse 7. We explored the concept of napping today. Because we have some sleepy Christians. Some of you I'm not sure are awake tonight. Those of you who nap for an hour each day, you're trimming 3.2 years off of your ministry. You live to be 75 years old, you lost three and a half years for your little catnap each day. What if instead you realized you were in a war and woke up and went to work? And if you're under the age of 30 and you're napping, you need to grow a pair. It is time to stand up and do the work of God. Something is wrong. It's like we don't know that we're in serious times. But if Sinasherib was outside your wall and you could see him, You'd cut those water sources off. Mm -hmm. You'd listen to the military commanders. And you would go to work. In the last 18 days, I have gone six total nights without sleep. Just going between the churches. And I don't consider it extraordinary. I consider it normal. Do you want to minister before the Lord? Learn to go to work. Charlie Brown is almost 70 years old and we didn't put him to bed one night before 2 o'clock while we were driving between three states and three churches. And you know what? When he got home, he went to work. Hey, let's pick up in verse 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is a greater power with us than with him. There's a greater what? Do you actually believe that? There's not a greater powder. (laughs) There's a greater power. Amen. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah and Judah said. Later, when Senator king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence? Mm. That you were 
Look, Judah's going to walk you through some of this, and trust me, it's going to be good. Say it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I, I just have to admit, Sennacherib's a bit of a devil. I mean, if you read this in other passages, he's talking about drinking urine, eating filth. He, he's not a good guy. But even I have to admit, he asked some really good questions. He really didn't know. He didn't understand how they could be confident. He had a superior army. He had beaten everybody that came before. He didn't get it. He could literally see, say see, see, no reason for the confidence of Hezekiah or the people of Judah. Apparently in his estimation, Israel's God was like every other one that had fallen. As the story goes on, we will see his answer. But I want to address us for just a minute. There's a verse that is in every one of our Bibles that fully explains this phenomenon where men of faith have confidence that the world cannot see. Yeah. I think you may know it if you think about it for a moment. Let's go to Hebrews 11, verse 1 together. Somebody yell out there when you get there. 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 Man, our projectors are even back up. Amen. I think we're even waking up our electronics tonight. Yeah. Now faith. Actually, somebody in NIV, will you read it for me? Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Get verse 2 as well. This is what the ancients were commended for. Yeah, come on. Saints, I'm going to read this to you in the amplified version, and we're going to break it down just a little bit. Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of the things we hope for, being the proof of things we do not see, and the conviction of their reality. Faith perceiving as real fact what is not revealed to the senses. Mm -hmm. Now, Sennacherib could not see the truth that Hezekiah possessed, but it was a reality. Truth is not based upon circumstances or appearances. It is based upon what God has said. Amen. To fully grasp this, we want to briefly cover the words that make up Hebrews 11, verse 1. I have a couple slides for you now. So our first one is hypostasis. Okay. This is faith that is confidence, assurance, or substance in some translations. See, you're here highlighted that it's the reality or the substance, what really exists under any appearance. Sinachar <laughs> couldn't see that. What really exists under any appearance. It did not appear as if Hezekiah had reason for confidence. And yet it was the reality that Hebrews was speaking about. See, the first component of faith is understanding that there is a reality that others can't see. Amen. That's the very first component. Yeah. Our next one is the electros. That's the best I could do with it. Electros. <laughs> the manifestation of the truth of that charge and the result to be reaped. Somebody say the result. The result. This is the manifestation of a truth that is a reality and will produce a result on the earth whether or not it appeared that way. See, you don't just perceive the reality. You don't just somehow spiritually sense it. You have received evidence as if it has been convicted in court of being true. Amen. Your history, perhaps during the time he was reopening the temple, getting the filth out of it, getting the priesthood right, he had seen evidence of the reality he now knew was true. Well, Sennacherib couldn't see it because he had never stepped forward into the truth. 
the further you go in the truth, the more this becomes reality. And the more opposition your loving Father knows you can handle, you now know what is real and you have the evidence of it accumulating in you. And you now move to what you must do. Third one is my favorite. Pragma. This is to do, to perform a thing to be done or to do. The idea here is that because what you are seeing, the truth, is a reality that has implications regardless of what it looks like, there is an action that follows this kind of faith. In the text itself, the word pragma is indicating that your faith produces, summons a kind of action because of the reality or the conviction that you walk in. Look, to put it simply, Hezekiah had a reality and the evidence of that reality so that he knew what he must do regardless of the circumstances. That fact was unencumbered by Sennacherib's inability to perceive it. It didn't matter. This should remind you of Pilate asking Jesus, what is truth? In John 18, 38. So let's grab hold of this for a second. Faith is not believing there's a God. Faith is not believing you go to heaven when you die. Those are fairy tales told to you by pansy pastors. That has nothing to do with faith. No ancient listed in Hebrews 11 was commended for that kind of faith. The kind of faith that they're commended for was understanding that there was a reality coming on the world called the kingdom of God. Having the evidence of it accumulating in their heart and life so that they now knew what they must do. An act of faith is building a boat, not raising a pinky. An act of faith is going to war. An act of faith is doing something about the reality. Well, Sennacherib could not see that. He could see men that did see it. And he was confounded by it. Why do they not buckle? Why do they not cave? I got to tell you, we woke up today hoping that there was enough opposition out there that we might achieve a little glory for our king today. Something needs to change in the body of Christ. Something has to happen where we stop looking for a lack of opposition. We stop looking for acceptance and we start celebrating when we have caught the enemy's eye because he is going down and we are not and that is glory for our king. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 11 and read down to 12. When Hezekiah said, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifice on it? <laughs> Hezekiah's reforms were holy, righteous, and good. Yes. Hezekiah acted because he had a reality that was coming to earth. He had the evidence of what God wanted to do, and he had deeds. He did what he must do. They were prescribed by the Word of God. Everything Hezekiah did was right and prescribed by the Word of God. But Sennacherib had no understanding of these things. And now he's appealing to base human rationale. He is saying what Hezekiah is doing. He's essentially going, hey, didn't Hezekiah even make a mistake here? He's perceiving hypocrisy where none exists. He's looking at Hezekiah and he does not understand the reality that Hezekiah is walking in. This is common in the kind of opposition that true believers face. 
This is common in everything that the unbelieving, those that do not love the truth, what they say about what you do. They take everything that you stood on, everything that you acted because you saw the reality of what God was doing, and they look at it and they just twist it a little bit. I had a family member tell me one time, hey, you know, we know that you are not blessed by God because you have to live in a garage with another family. They looked at what I would, I saw the reality of God's word, of what God wanted to do in my family. Enjoy your pleasures now, powder puff. See, when you start to learn through false teaching that the material blessings in your life are the product of a spiritual blessing in your life, Mm -hmm. then you can live like a pig in pleasure now. Of course, you'll be a pauper in eternity. The Bible actually teaches us that when we are getting this right, a sign will be others will hate you for it. Okay, It's not your best life now. It never has been your best life now. It is his life in you and your crucifixion now that you might be raised to glory. Peter had something to say about this, though, Justin. All right, who's going to open up? To 2 Peter 2.12. Read it when you got it. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. (laughs) Because they cannot see the reality that you see. Because they cannot see the evidence because they're not experiencing the evidence. Because they do not have actions that are proof of what God is doing. They are merely instinctual beasts, brute animals that are only led by their instincts. Wow. <laughs> we, we were watching a, we were watching a modern machinery show. All of the advancements in machinery. And there's this conveyor belt. And as long as this cow sees food in front of him, he will literally walk right into a piston that shoots him in the head. Okay? Cow in front of him drops over. But it's not a problem because he's only looking at what he's about to gain in the next few steps. That's what the church is being conditioned for. But the true church looks beyond what you're missing right now to the glory that will be revealed based on what you are willing to endure right now. Sinasherib starts by slandering Hezekiah, but he moves on to blaspheme the God of Israel. That is also a trait endemic to the kind of opposition that all true believers face. It starts by criticisms of you. Picking apart your actions. But their real problem is with God, and so it will always drift there. Let's pick back up in verse 13. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Do you not know what my father has done to them? (laughs) (laughs) The gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed have been able to save these people from me. How then can your God deliver you from my hands? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or, or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less 
will your God deliver you from my hand? Mm-hmm. So the sheriff's officers spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the peoples of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah would not rescue his people from my hand. Look, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here, but if you're one of those bleeding heart sympathizers and you're just worried for Sennacherib, (laughs) there's this book that is a companion to our studies here. And uh, the very first lesson in it is uh, simply called God. And, um, you know, not only does it tell you that a correct view of the God of Israel is foundational to all theology, it also tells you that to fear him is the beginning of wisdom. It also tells you that his attributes have been seen since the creation, like, like the beginning of the creation. It also says the fool says in his heart there is no God. And this book is just quoting a much better book called the Bible. But this is the first lesson that we teach everyone when they come here. The very first one. Sinashar would have benefited from that. There's a a second page. A a second page. And I'm saying this because I want you to benefit from it. Uh, This is the immutable characteristics of God. It would have been good for, for Sinashar to know that Jeremiah 32:27 teaches that there's nothing too hard for God. That would have been good for him to understand that the God of Israel is, is omnipotent. It might also be good for him to understand that he's omnipresent, that God is in present, present in the highest heavens and the lowest depths, because Sennacherib is going to get cut down in a land outside Israel. Like These are things that like he should have been known, should have, should have been told. He missed out on a few. He missed out on the idea that God's character doesn't change, that he's immutable, like James 1.17 says. Uh, And maybe most of all, I mean, to be so bold not only to make a threat privately and make a threat publicly, but to write it down, he missed the fact that Hebrews 4.13 says that that God sees all. I mean, that's... uh, those are big ones that Sennacherib's mama should have, should have told him, right? <laughs> when you're firmly established in the truth, the opposition you face is not a rejection of you, though. Amen. It's rather a rejection of the truth or the reality and the evidence that you represent. Amen. Okay? Look, Luke 10, verse 16 speaks to this in a way that we need to learn to internalize, to think this way. Not just acknowledge it, but live in a manner where we are representing him and you understand that you are his ambassador. You are his hands and feet on the earth. Luke ten sixteen, He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. He's clearly saying that if someone receives one of his disciples, they have received him. If they reject them, then they've rejected the Christ himself and his father. There is no hope left for you. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to turn. God takes this subject very seriously. We don't have to take a long time to cover the supremacy of God in this house. This is a favorite topic that we speak on regularly. But Psalm 82 says God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. Among the gods. 
There is nowhere, nothing that is free from his judgment when he decides to bring it down. And Sennacherib is going to learn this the hard way. The real key here, though, is that us, his saints, his Christians, somehow we get deluded into forgetting that point when you're facing opposition. I'm speaking about myself. I will wake up one morning and I will doubt that this is going to work out despite the fact I've seen it do it so many times beforehand. We must cultivate the idea, the expectation yes. that we are the bride and it is our joy to go to opposition. Amen. It is achieving eternal glory and our God is the one who is above all other gods. Amen. Brother Linton, pick up in verse 18 for me. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and to make them afraid in order to capture the city. Wait, y'all, y'all uh, I, don't, I don't want you to miss this, okay? Because when I read this, I thought of all of my, my relatives. <laughs> when people that have demonstrated no serious capacity for obedience, uh, they have not learned to imitate the life of Jesus at all, suddenly start to adopt and, and mimic the language of the believer, like God's holy language. Sinasherib's people are now speaking God's holy language to oppose God's people. It's a clear sign of satanic strategy or Sennacherib-like sin. I'll give you a few of them just for fun. Is that all right? Uh, um, uh, Judge not, lest you be judged. But they're unfamiliar and disobedient to every other scripture that comes before it and after it. Uh, well, Well, doesn't the Bible say... Look, that is always a prelude to justifying compromise. Either they know what the Bible says or they do not. When you have to start with, well, doesn't the Bible say somewhere, that says everything. This is like an Assyrian trying to speak Hebrew. This is why it's so vital that we be established in the truth. When you have a firm grasp on the reality and evidence of what the truth demands that you do, Then, and only then, do these kind of tactics stop affecting you. Does that make sense to you? Yes. When you have the reality and the evidence of what God has asked you to do, you are no longer swayed by an Assyrian trying to speak Christianese to you. I want to hand out a few passages. Who wants to read? Paul, you get 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Rob, you get Jude 12 and 13. JJ, you get Daniel 11, 32. Nick Rosales, you get Jeremiah 23, 18. Jackie, you get Acts 20, 29 through 31. Cho, you get 2 Peter 1, 12. Uh, Nolan, you get Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 4, 14. Uh, Glenn, you get Titus 1, 9 through 11. Read 2 Peter when you get it. But there were also false prophets among the people. Wow. Just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into dispute, disrepute. See, Peter is not saying this to the lost. Nope. He's not saying this to those who obviously don't love the truth. Right. He's saying this to people that love the truth. And he's saying many will follow their shameful ways. 
How do these false prophets among the people act? They begin like Sennacherib to repeat Christianese enough to assuage you off of the reality that you should be following. When you have a reality that you're holding to, when you have evidence of the reality in you, these attacks don't even faze you. You can look right at them and say, that is not the truth of God's word, and I will not stand for it. Amen. Who's got Jude 12 and 13? These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest fault. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Shepherds. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooting, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars, for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Notice that Jude doesn't mention anything that they say. He doesn't even care what they say because the focus is not on what they say. It's how they live their lives as they say it. You can know these men by the fruit that they do not have. They're shepherds who only feed themselves. When you stand on the reality of truth, when you are walking in the evidence, when you have the, the, the deeds and the actions, you can look clearly and see the deeds that they have, and their words will not assuage you. So we're, we're going to do Daniel 11.32, uh, and I just have a very quick, like, two-sentence story for you, okay? Uh, I watched a relative that I love very, very much. I prayed for her to get filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized her in water, saw her do well for, you know, uh, some months and then not well for years and then well for some months. And uh, we're doing the scriptural Kung Fu thing, right? And, and I just smiled. I had no response. So you don't have anything to say to that? No, I don't. Why not? Because I know you. That was the last time that I spoke to her. It was about seven years ago. There is no need to argue with someone who is unholy trying to speak the holy language to back you off of what you know you must do. Hey, what's Daniel 11.32 say? With flattery, who does he try to corrupt? Those that are already violating the covenant. The best way to stay in the truth is to be in the truth. Amen. <laughs> okay. You make yourself vulnerable when you violate the covenant. You are not vulnerable when you are standing in the center of the truth. Amen. Yeah, tell me, Christian, your strongest moments have always been when you have previously sinned and then you go sit with those who are also sinning. That, that was definitely the peak of your spiritual fortitude. Not usually. No. We must cut off the areas that we are finding flattery and self-deception propagating itself. When you find something that you know you probably shouldn't be doing, but it's accepted in a circle, run. Get the hell away from it. We've seen this too many times, and I love you too much, to watch you repeat that. We will not be those that are corrupted by flattery. Jeremiah 23:18 should be familiar. Who, 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 who of the voices around us, says the Lord, has actually heard from me? God himself is getting tired of hearing shepherds and prophets speaking for him when he's not saying it. I know none of you have ever walked around a corner and heard somebody quoting you and it wasn't accurate. That never bothered you a bit. 
I've not heard any of you repeating something that Pastor Matthew said with about 50% clarity. God is reaching his limit with how much of this profaning speech he will hear. Not profane because it was vulgar, profane because it is not what he said and it's demeaning his name. Saints, we have to elevate our standards and get in the counsel of the Most High God. We will find what we need. Acts 20. Acts 20. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Man, I love the NIV. It says, and distort the truth. They won't come presenting an alternate truth. They won't come presenting a new truth. They'll just slightly twist it. Or maybe they might say the wrong thing, but at the wrong time. Maybe they might actually be speaking the language that you speak and saying the things you say, but in the wrong context. What does verse 31 say? Therefore be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So be on your guard. Be on your guard by always standing in the truth. This is how you guard yourself. Always standing in the truth in your studies. Always standing in the truth in your actions. Always standing in the truth in your disciplines. This is how you guard yourself from people speaking your own language to try to distort. Who's got 2 Peter 1.12 through just 1.12? I love Peter the military commander. I will keep reminding you of them even though you're firmly established in the truth because he knows how important it is. Being firmly established in the truth is how you can go through great opposition and still come out with glory for the king. Who has Hebrews 4.14? Come on. Hold firmly to the faith we profess. Yeah. Do you have a great high priest? Yes. Then hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Amen. Titus 1 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Whoop. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk yeah. and deception. Especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. Because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Say hold firm. Hold firm. You must hold firmly to the message as it had been taught. As it's been taught by whom? Your military officers. You have to hold firm to what they're teaching. So we're going to jump into verse 19, and I just want to remind you quickly. Pastor Justin Johnson had a a dream that's very pertinent to this. If uh, if you haven't heard about it, talk with Pastor Piro, talk with Pastor Sutherland about it. But our 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 attitude usually would be to hear Sinashev's threats, to see his blog, his YouTube channel, and because we're actually a little disturbed by it, to, to tell everybody, did you see this? Did you see this? What Pastor Johnson's dream ultimately warns us about is when you repeat the kind of lies that Sinasherib says, 
as a spirit-filled Christian, you are participating in distorting the truth. Okay? We need to simply endure the opposition for the greater glory of God without dignifying it with a response, a like, a click, or a forwarding to someone else. Hey, let's pick up in verse 19. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the, of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. Wow. Notice Ezra's perspective. He's not writing about the political intrigues. He doesn't, he doesn't form this as there was a personality conflict between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. He doesn't mention the differences in their preference over border or something. This was about treating the God of Israel as if he were like the God of other nations. See, for Ezra, all the way through Chronicles, he keeps two things central. The Davidic promise must remain true, and our God is different than every other God. And that's how he shapes this up. It's actually different than Isaiah writes about it. It's different than the writer of Kings writes about it. Because for Ezra, the most important thing is not the sensational celestial signs that we see. It is that the word of God remained true through the whole period. Come on. Get verse 20 and 21. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer Hmm. about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men, (laughs) the leaders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. Look, as you might imagine, we are anxious to talk to you about the celestial aspects of tonight's passage and the annihilation of the Assyrian army. But what is important to emphasize, and frankly is my favorite part of this chapter, is what Ezra highlights in his accounting. That the king and the prophet cried out together. Now briefly, if you think about passages in the past, prophets often will deliver a message. Or a king will ask them to search something out. But we begin to see a unity here. That is like Elder Baj and Elder Charlie praying somewhere. There's a response that's sent from the heavens. Matthew 18, verse 19 and 20 says this. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, predicated that it's according to his word, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where there are two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Those who represent the reality of God must stand in the unity of his will, testifying to the truth. When we do that, when we stand and don't quake, heaven answers us because we are partners with God in his desire to accomplish on the earth. We're standing in his will and he answers from heaven when he sees unity in accordance with his word that is true. Look, we are going to get into the celestial powers part of this because it's fun and that's part of the reason you come. But envision for just a minute Hezekiah and Isaiah praying together. Yeah. I have an unspoken. No. No. <laughs> you think they squeeze each are... other's hands in a circle? <laughs> no, these men gain strength from their relationship to the yeah, truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They gain strength from knowing that heaven was with them because they were with heaven. Yeah. And I have to imagine everybody was hanging out outside the palace doing the same thing. Hey, Amen. Let's throw the LXX up on the screen. And they yelled unto him. Yeah! I don't like the English cried so much because that indicates uh-uh. that they sat there and weeped. No, they weren't doing that. 
No, they got together in unity and they shouted unto God. Amen. And the Lord sent an angel. And Just he one. An angel. And he obliterated. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Every mighty warrior and ruler and commandant in the camp of the king of Assyria. Man, they yelled unto God. They yelled unto heavens, and there was a response from the heavens. They sent, he sent an angel, and he obliterated the warriors, the Gibor Ha'il. They obliterated the archons, and they obliterated the officers. In fact, there were 185,000 men that were destroyed by one angel. Mm. The picture here is that faithfulness is springing up from the earth, like Psalm 85 says. Yes. And so God is reaching down in righteousness from the heavens. Not to pat somebody on the back, but he's making a fist. This is where Isaiah said that my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Okay? He specifically mentions warriors, archons, and officers. There's no reason for that distinction if we're not hinting at something is also getting judged in the heavens. Uh, we're kind of, I don't know, we're at an hour and 32 minutes, so... Look, I, I'm going to share with you in brief the importance of this. And then we're going to move through this passage with some other beautiful things. There are a few tipping points in world history that when you look back on, because it went the way that, that it went, you don't realize how important are. Everybody loves the Battle of Thermopylae, uh, mostly because Gerard Butler had some fake muscles painted on him and it was a movie in our time. But the thing is, that, that battle did not change world history. It's an inspiring story. Understand something. If the Assyrians conquer Judah, Israel has already fallen. Yeah. Samaria is already gone. If they conquer Judah and they do to Judah what he says he's going to do to Judah, you have no Judaism. Yeah. So, well, that's okay. We're Christians. You cannot have Christianity without having had Judaism. There would be no line for Messiah to come through. Wow. If Jerusalem falls in this moment, then the promise of God to Jerusalem and the Davidic line would have fallen. I got to tell you, the outcome was always certain. Come on. God, God was never going to let that happen. Amen. Never. Not at any time. If Jerusalem falls, it's because God said that it would fall and he promises he will bring them back. But it will not come like this. And the reason that it can't is he was not through working in the line of David. Amen. And he's still not through working in the line Amen. of David. And that really is Ezra's point. This is a tipping point in world history. And he's not he doesn't mention the number of people who died. He, in fact, he downplays the supernatural aspects that Kings and Isaiah play up here because he's emphasizing something. The most supernatural thing that happens is God upholds his word. Amen. Yes. That is the most. Charismatics, you should learn that. Yeah. Your latest fuzzy feeling is not the most supernatural thing that happens. The fact that God's word is eternal and endures forever is what's important. Amen. The reality is that the outcome was never in question. Being firmly established in the truth demands that the believer possesses the title deed to the outcome as if the evidence and verdict have already been given. Come on. No matter what the circumstances look like. This is a lesson that believers have been learning forever. You don't have to turn there. 
I'm just going to read it to you. It's a psalm that we all love. This is Psalm 73:16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Until I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final outcome. Come on, yeah. Now what the truth will allow you to do is to know the outcome beforehand. Yes. Yes. See, this psalmist is upset because he's looking at the circumstances and he is not assured of the outcome until he goes back to the source of truth. Come on. If you're in an uneasy time, I was not upset or uneasy about COVID. Not, it didn't take me 35 minutes to make the decision. Okay? Because I know the character of my God and the surety of his word. Amen. Friends, there is great glory after you go through great opposition because you considered the word of God greater than all other things. Yes. That's what this uh, lesson is ultimately about. Amen. Brother Linton, let's pick up in uh, 21 and go down through 24 for us. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with the sword. <laughs> Look, we're not going to teach on it tonight. But what the world considers masculine, somebody who's strong, men obey him, he's a conqueror. If he's an utter failure in his own home, he is not a man, not by any standard or stretch of the imagination. This great warlord is cut down by his own children when yeah. he comes home. In the temple to his gods. Yeah. <laughs> you can keep reading. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of, of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all, all others. He took care of them on every side. Come on. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. And then on, from then, then on, on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. Again, we're going to pause and not linger on it. But this messianic type, this son of David, has been supernaturally delivered and all nations are learning to fear him. If you've been with us through Samuel, you begin to pick up on these repeating patterns. Yeah. Keep going to 24. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord, who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. Listen, after the physical attack where war has come to his door and God delivered him, the promise could not be stomped out. It could not be stopped. An attack comes to his actual health, to the man that is leading the people into righteousness. And God answers with a sign. He heals him. And it's going to be interesting to denote the way in which Ezra focuses us yet again. Pick up in 25. But Hezekiah's heart was proud, and he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore, the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Hezekiah is attacked by an army. Hezekiah faces opposition to his health, and now he's facing opposition even in his own heart. You see, the attacks don't stop. Whenever you love the truth, the opposition just grows and grows. And if it doesn't work in one area, it'll show up in another area over and yeah. over again. Yeah. Pick up in verse 26 and let's keep going. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart, yeah. as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. Look, the answer to the physical attack of war, the answer to the attack on his health, the answer to the attack on his emotional state, his heart, is the first words of every good sermon. Repent! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
at every stage of a believer's life as the bride of Christ, repentance is needed. Yes. It, it keeps us being formed into the image of Christ. Also, notice Ezra's perspective here. Is not one of the coolest things in all of the Bible that the sun, uh, or the rather shadow, moved 15 degrees on a sundial to show he'd have 15 more years? Yeah. Right. Ezra doesn't even mention it. Right. It's not important. He says it gave him a sign. The miracle was beside the point. The point is, is God is always true to his word. Amen. See, the miracle is secondary to the surety of the enduring word of God. Then miracles just come. come hey, let's do verse 27. <laughs> Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made treasuries <clears throat> for his silver and gold, and for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine and oil. And he made stalls for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flocks. He built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds, for God had given him very great riches. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down the west side of the city of David. Hmm. He succeeded in everything he undertook. Hey, will you read that last sentence one more time for me? He succeeded in everything he undertook. Okay, keep going. But when envoys were sent by the rulers <coughs> of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. Look, so we stated this just a minute ago. But Ezra is not emphasizing the sensational nature of a heavenly sign of an angelic battle, he's instead emphasizing the nature of the promise that threads through Chronicles. And specifically the repentance that was the cure. Not the miraculous parts of it at all. He wants you to understand God is not done with the Davidic line and when they repent, he works inside of them. Also, after the prevailing in the attacks that we've just seen. So, war. Then attack on his health and his body. Then on his own heart and spiritual condition. We come to one that is just jaw-dropping. The most sinister of all the attacks. He was taking the blessings that God had granted him for granted. This was the most vicious attack that had been unleashed on Hezekiah up to this point. Standing toe-to-toe with the world's leading military power didn't cause him to bend or break. But blessings from God began to have an effect when he took them for granted and didn't really understand who he was. See, there's an interesting parallel here. If you read carefully 2 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 8, you'll see the exact same phrase about David. He gave him success everywhere he went. The problem is when a man has success everywhere he goes because he's doing what the Lord says to do, it's easy for the man to end up doing things like not going to war in the springtime. You start to take the blessings of God for granted. When you stand in the truth, the inevitable promised opposition is also good for you. It reminds you to stay dependent on the Lord. It helps you stay focused on the glory of God. We do not need, we do not want, and we reject the gospel of less opposition. What we want is the glory of God, and it only comes... Through great opposition. That is a defining message for our time. It's something that we have to grab hold of. 
because we naturally gravitate towards less resistance and the spirit of truth will naturally push you into ever-increasing resistance. Hey, Oswald Chambers has a quote, by the way. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. Most of you are going to be pretty familiar with that quote. Think of it in light of Hezekiah. The unguarded strengths in our lives are the areas that God has blessed us abundantly. Now, if we're heading into opposition and persecution, what is it you think you should be looking at more closely? Looking to refine, looking to make your home, house, and heart ready for the conflict to come. Hey, let's pick up in 32 and go all the way through 33. The other events of Hezekiah's reign and his acts of devotion are written in the vision of the prophet Isaiah, son of Amon, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Hezekiah rested with his fathers and was buried on the hill where the tombs of David's descendants are. All Judah and the people of Jerusalem honored him when he died, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. In the very end of Hezekiah's life, he is buried there where the the sons of David are buried, where the righteous kings are buried. Hezekiah goes down in every list as a righteous king. It's because he learned to stand on the truth that he knew and the reality that he knew. And that reality was God's promise to the Davidic line. He knew that under any circumstance, God would inevitably come through for David's line because he made a promise. He knew that because of God's word, God would never back down, and therefore he went to work knowing that promise. Look, 2 Kings 19, verse 29 through 31, was spoken by Isaiah to Hezekiah. It's the fruit of their prayer meeting. Come on. (laughs) says, this will be the sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. Come on. Look, the same scripture was prophesied to this church. Isaiah, seeing the vision of God, prophesied this to Hezekiah and said, Take root below. What you do below underground, what you begin to plant underground, what you begin to sow into your life, knowing the promise of God, will eventually bear fruit above. It's almost like being firmly established and rooted in the truth of the Word of God, no matter what your circumstances are, will always eventually make its way to bearing fruit on the surface. Now, consider something. The chronicler, he doesn't even mention the shadow that moved backwards 15 degrees. That is not a sign that was worth mentioning. He barely mentions the angel's annihilation of the 185,000 men. It's a single verse, whereas in Kings and in Isaiah, it's a much bigger deal. To Ezra, who's writing after these events, the enduring celestial sign, the sign that no one talks about. Hezekiah, this will be a sign for you. Oh, you're talking about the sundial. No. Hezekiah, this will be a sign for you. Oh, you're talking about the angelic deliverance. No. 
The celestial sign for you, Hezekiah, will be that the Davidic promise remains true no matter what the circumstances look like. Come on. That is the promise that the chronicler is showing us. And you know what's great about that? I don't know whether you'll see an angel kill 185,000 men. I hope you'll see 185,000 saved. I don't know whether your life will be extended 15 years. I don't want mine extended 15 minutes. I've had a do not resuscitate since I was 20 years old. But I do know that I will see the celestial sign that says God's word will never fail. Fulfilled in my life daily. And you can know that too. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 says this. For you have been born again. I'm just going to personalize it and say you, LCM, have been yeah. born again. Come on. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring Woo! word of God that is truth. That word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Take that, little <laughs> The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Hear this last part, LCM. And this is the word that was preached to you. We have an imperishable word, an imperishable truth. And we are learning to take it in and live like it a little more every single day. We're beginning to get a grasp on the things that are ahead of us. There is a reason our church is pointed the direction that it is. We're heading for the days of Jeremiah. But there's something that is imperishable and unbreakable in you. We're going to learn to cultivate it, to live in it, and be men like Hezekiah who do not break in the face of adversity. Our king reigns, and his resurrection is in our bones, LCM. We will not relent in the fact of suffering. We will raise a joyous war cry. Knowing our God's promise will stand to this church and this house. These are the days we stare the king of the north in the eyes and say, in the name of Jesus, we will not yield. His truth stands and it always will for us. Now we must take our courage and become like our king and stand with him. Stand with us. We're going to pray the victorious prayer of the saints, knowing that his promises always will stand. We're going to pray knowing that when God says it, that means it will be done. We're going to pray knowing that his promises specifically to you are sure and they will happen. We're going to pray knowing that any opposition is only the, the verity of your promise coming true. Any opposition you face means that that promise is coming more true. It is authenticating God's promise to you. We're going to pray that we would be joyful in warfare as we go through the trials because we know it's producing something in us as we eagerly await the salvation of our day. So mighty God, we pray.